Hi guys, and welcome to Learn with Graveholic. My name is Marcus, and today we'll be talking to Nicholas Roach. He is a fantastic individual. He's been riding in the Pro Peloton for 18 seasons. So he's an incredible individual. He has been in 24 Grand Tours. He's won two Grand Tour stages in La Vuelta. He's had the red jersey on his shoulders in the, the Vuelta as well, the leader jersey. Really, really impressive career. His career has now come to an end since two seasons, and he's now, yeah, what is he? Um, that's what we're going to figure out. He, that he has energy, that he has passion, that he, he's highly motivated, there's no doubt. And here are some of the things that we'll be talking about today. The hardest question for me is, what do you do now? I'm like, uh, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> when you have to go through the bad weather, and you're cold, and you're shaking, and... The pain of doing those really big intervals, it's more difficult. I, I, I used to love pain. I like it less. <laughs> you go as far as you go. And if it's just going one step up, well, at least you went one step up. Mm. It doesn't mean you dream about 10. It's okay to not reach 10. But if you went one up, well, you're one up on zero. Okay. I hope you found that interesting because here is the full interview with Nicolas. Hi, Nico. How are you doing today? Hi, how are you? Uh, first of all, I want to apologize for my very casual look, uh, but um, I'm in a hotel in Altea. Reception was terrible, so I had to go outside and I had to find one of those uh, uh, towels uh, or, you know, when you go for a drink holder to be able to, to have the phone. So I'm not usually all this comfortable when I do these podcasts, but so sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a beautiful setting. And you said that you're in, in Spain yeah, right look, now. I, I've got... Palm trees behind and everything. <laughs> oh, you're excused then. You're excused. And I, I want to get to that point right now. You're there to to uh, spend time with Trinity Racing, right? But I was thinking about that. Like, how big is your business cards nowadays? Is it like how many how many pages does it have? Like, you must have so many oh. titles by now. It's it's. Can we yeah. just walk through them <laughs> right real quick? Like your gravel team manager, your gravel privateer, your ambassador, your your product development guru, your yeah. Yeah, director of sport so, chief. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right, Marcus. The, the, the hardest question for me is, what do you do now? I'm like, uh, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> because as you mentioned, you know, I, I, I help out with Trinity, but Helping out from Trinity, from management to driving the cars around to literally just helping out the team from anything. If if they're stuck and I need to go and pick up the car in England to, to drive it to Belgium because I have a race there, I'll do that. To being sports director, to sorting out the riders as well, to looking after the training of some of the riders who live down inside of France. Um, to again gravel so yes i have my my own little team i ride and i help out my my brother julian uh, and minka who are the three other riders from the team i i work with brands as an ambassador and also um as a product developer in some cases uh and i'm a tv presenter um which is from presenting but also from commentating and I do motivational talks. Uh, I work with companies and, and do corporate days. Um, literally, I, I think this is what I also enjoy is that 
every week I'm doing something different. Then it comes back together on yeah. every single day on the bicycle. But I, I, I love the cycling industry as a whole from the very beginning to the, 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 the product, to the physical part, to the mental part. Uh, and also I'm so passionate about the cycling industry that I love sharing my experience and talk to people who are as excited about me or want to know more about cycling. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I was wondering, like, I mean, CEOs, they have assistants and stuff like that that manages their calendar and they do all this. Stuff. And I was thinking, how do Nico do it? Like, he has so many things on oh. his plate. How do you, how do you, how do you choose what to do and when? How, like, is there a priority list? Like, do you do the gravel races first or do you do the commentating, commentary stuff first? Or like, how do you, how do you get it? Yeah, it, it's, it's a very good question. Again, I, it's not an easy one because I, I wish I could train more and then be even better at gravel and like be com more competitive. But on the other hand, I'm like, I want to be a competitive graveler, but my, my, my sporting career is behind me. This is bonus. This is fun. This is enjoyment. And I would go deep and into a lot of pain, but it still needs to be fun and in my own terms. Um, you know, in, in many other sports, when especially if you look in motorsports, it's very different because maybe it's not as physical, right? But in motorsports, when a pilot retires, well, some of them, they go into endurance racing, rally driving, or whatever they, go, they want to do. In pro cycling, until a couple of years ago, it was still very... When you stop, you stop and you become a sports director or you disappear from the cycling world. Lucky enough, today in 2024 and already for a couple of years, there's loads of opportunities. And I have to say, I was done with road racing. I was tired of it. I was tired of the system. I've done 18 years. It was time for me to, to leave my place. But I still wanted to ride my bike. I still like the adrenaline of racing. And not racing for the win, the, the adrenaline of going as hard as I can. So I don't have a big ego. The guys, they beat me. Amateurs beat me. It's, it's fine. I'm racing against myself. I'm yeah. battling myself. So unfortunately, gravel today is not my priority. But it has a big part of my life. Yeah. Because, unfortunately, this also has a deadline. Because maybe two years, three years, but there's a moment where, for me, it's also getting more and more difficult for training in difficult conditions. Mm. When it's beautiful and sunny and everything, everybody enjoys going riding the bikes. Yeah. When you have to go through the bad weather and you're cold and you're shaking and the pain of doing those really big intervals... It's more difficult. I, I I used to love pain. I like it less. <laughs> and so, so for me, it's about finding a balance where, thankfully, I'm lucky enough that in modern world, I can gravel and still enjoy my life, traveling the world, uh, being on the bicycle. And my life situation is also giving me this opportunity where... Um, I'm a single man. I've had a, a, a divorce five years ago. I already have a daughter and I don't have this pressure of rebuilding my life. I have a pressure of rebuilding myself. Yeah. 
so when I finished pro cycling, I knew I wanted to stop, but I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next. I was going to ask about that. Like you, as I understand it, some people probably, if you spend 18 years doing the same thing, more or less, more or less over and over every year, super strict, Everyone knows more or less what to do. There's training, there's the the, the 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 races, and there's the diet, and there's all those things, right? And then you step over the cliff, and then it's like, what what's there? Were you at all afraid of that, or did you you mentioned earlier that you maybe were even calm about it? Yeah, yeah, I, I was I was quite scared to be honest. Um, although I had already a few contracts signed with TV. And I had straight away one or two brands who approached me to be an ambassador. So I knew I was going to have an income. It was about where do I identify myself? Yeah. Do I want to be a sports director? Do I want to be an athlete manager? Um, do I want to just step out of cycling and create my own business totally away from cycling into, I don't know, you know, some guys, they open a restaurant, they have a coffee shop or a bike shop or whatever. And, and, and I was struggling with that because also, should I move? Where should I go and live? Mm. And in a way, you know, if, you have, if you're still with your family, it's more easy for that choice because you stay where your family is. You're not going to move your kid because you retired yeah. from, from his local school and all that. Where at that point, I was like, well, I'm on my own here. I have all these opportunities coming up. Some I like, some I don't like, some make revenue, some don't make revenue. Mm. Where, where where should I go? Uh, it was difficult. And I have to say, doing that TV program, Dancing with the Stars, was very refreshing. Mm. Um, when they contacted me, the first question I asked, because I was, I was, I had planned and talked with Andrew, um, cause I did not want to go into world tour as a sports director because I had, I didn't have the, the, um, the qualification for it. Mm. Although I could have come in as, as an assistant. I was like, but I was like, okay, I, I'm going to work Trinity and it, and it was an amazing experience. I'll come back to that in a second. But the minute I retired, I get this call saying, Will you work on? Will you try dancing with the stars? And I was like, okay. But my first question was, please give me the dates, because I was so afraid it was gonna be uh, crossing over with the cycling season and missing out on TV work yeah. or sports director work. So that was the only word, that, worry. There was nothing else. There was like yes, but just give me the dates. Yeah. Wow. So give me the dates. So so when they said. It's January till March. I was like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Get me in. <laughs> There's almost no cycling races in January. So let's go. And, and to be honest, I, I'm not a great dancer, right? So, so I was like, if I get a month in, it's better than nothing. But and then eventually, you... I I got 12 weeks. So it was exactly. it was incredible. I haven't I haven't seen uh, it. I, I was going to search for it, but I didn't, I didn't have time to do it. So I, I need to look it up <laughs> afterwards. But you can't have been that bad if you made it in twelve weeks, huh? Yeah, uh, I, 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 man, I, I worked so hard. Yeah, I had so much pain and aches in my body because, you know, when you're on a bicycle for so long in your life, you're in the same position. You don't move. You don't know your left from your right. You have zero coordination because everything is just so 
automatic. Yeah. You're just like a robot on a bicycle. And yes, I feel the road. I feel my body. I understand everything. But when my, my partner was telling me, oh, it's right leg to the right, uh, do this step with the right leg and do this thing with your left arm. And I was like, huh. <laughs> can you repeat that? <laughs> and, and coordination was terrible. So I had one advantage is I wasn't a good dancer, but I could work out seven or eight hours a day, nonstop, just dancing. And, and my partner would just put me in front of the mirror and sit down and have a breather and say, do it again and again and again and again. So being fit did not mean I was a better dancer. It just means I could try more and fail more <laughs> until, until eventually I got it right. But, but for me, it was really important because more than the dance, so it was symbolically, it was the first time in 22 years that I had spent so much time back home in Ireland. Uh, I left Ireland when I was 15 with my parents, go back to France. I did my last years of school in France. I did my first races, well, the first kind of part of my bigger career in France. And for me to go back to Ireland for four months, um, I didn't rent an apartment. I went back and lived with my grandparents. And for me just to go back to my family, my roots, my mm -hmm. origins, to be back connecting with Ireland wow. was, was really important. Yeah. Then I was ready. It was like, you know, that, that, it gave me a lot of confidence and my family really helped me out in Ireland. My uncle and cousins who were very close to me and who have followed me all my career, they were really supportive of what I was going to do next, you know? Yeah. And although I felt very secure and I was pretending to be secure and like I said, inside me, I was very worried about what was I going to do. Although I already had opportunities, they're like, don't worry, Nico, it's going to come to you. Be patient, be patient, be patient. I was not someone who was very patient, so it was hard to to, to understand it. And and you know what, my when I left Ireland, my 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 poor granddad passed away three months, well, three weeks later. Sorry, three weeks later. Uh, and for me, it was like it was great for me to be able to live with my grandparents mm. uh, the last four months of my granddad's life. Wow! And uh, emotionally, it was it was super intense. Uh, and it was great because, you know, when you, when you travel the world for 20 odd years, you know, with the under 23s and junior levels, mm. uh, you, you don't see your family that often. And, and I went back to Ireland maybe three, four times a year over my career. So for me to be spending that much time with my family, uh, in those important moments was, was, was incredible. Wow. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I mean, Happy to that you got to spend that time. That's that's that must have been really valuable. Um, but on on a different note, <laughs> this is going to sound weird. And when you traveled back those few times, were were those the times that yeah, when you actually won the national championships as well? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on a few occasions, yes, <laughs> yes. So yeah, one of do one you of have my dual, trips. Do you have dual citizenships? No, I'm a hundred percent Irish. Oh, you are okay. But, yeah. but your, mo mo your yeah. mom is French, no? My mom is French, so yeah. it, it's it's I, I I could have dual if I wanted to. Oh, okay. Uh, and I actually had dual until 2012, and then I decided to to give back my French residency um, citizenship. It, it went through a long process, but I, I felt I was in the middle. Mm. Um, the, uh, especially you know growing up in France 
going through French amateur teams, French professional teams. But I had a big Irish heart. Yeah. And I felt that historically, I, I felt that, you know, when I was 14, I went to my first national team with Ireland. And I did my first world championships in 2001 with Ireland. And I won my first international race when I was 15 with an Irish jersey. And I felt I wanted to represent Ireland because, in my opinion, France had a lot of talent, a lot of superstars. They did not need me. Mm. And I was proud to represent the country that my dad was world champion with. And it made more sense for me to, to represent Ireland. I felt more home representing Ireland. But because I had dual citizenship, I was always a foreigner. When I, I, I actually did French team uh, camps when I was junior. And I was like, you know what? I need to call it. And mm. I, need to, I need to make a choice because, yes, I have dual citizenship. But there's a moment for myself, for my identity, I was getting confused. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yes, I wanted. I, I'd love France. Yes, I love Ireland. But I felt for sport and for cycling, well, I was going to choose Ireland. It's interesting to hear that because what we're doing now with with our boys, they are. Um, I have three, but the the two youngest ones, they are going to get dual citizenship. So my wife is German. I'm Swedish. So we're giving the first one already has dual. The second one is is, is about to get his dual citizenship as well. But that's interesting to hear. Your point of view there. I never yeah. thought about it like that. Um, but I'm, I'm so, going to be I'm going to be thoughtful about that when they grow up. How they, how they react and think and feel about that. So, to be, to be honest with you, Marcus, I, I think that if I wasn't a professional athlete, I would have kept both citizenship. Oh. Um, it, it was more because I had this pressure with with cycling. Yeah. Um, because in terms of culture and everything, I'm a hundred percent both. Mm. You know, I, I, I love as much a glass of red wine than a Guinness. Yeah. But, and, but if it comes to the six nations, I'm a hundred percent for Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. You mentioned your dad earlier, right? And he's, he's, I would say that he's a world famous cyclist. Uh, and he, he's one of the few and the second one ever to win the triple crown. Tour de France, Giro d'Italia, though that that's double is just difficult itself, and then winning the worlds on top of that is just incredible. I mean, my dad, in comparison, is like a nobody, and and so I'm kind of curious how how have you felt about that? Has that been a burden, or was that an inspiration for you, like having a dad that was so successful, and then you getting also so into cycling the way that you did? Um, so it, it's been both. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I used to be a fast runner. I played football, I played rugby, um, and, and I was just an athlete. I was good, some sports better than others, but I was generally above average in everything I ever did when it came to sports. Um, I was just an athletic person. Mm -hmm. And um, everything I did... When I was, because I, at those years, I was living in Ireland as my teens. Everything I did, I was all, only good because I was Stephen Roach's son. Mm. And, you know, I, I was studying modern history and my dad and Sean Killy was in our history books. Yeah. They're in our modern Incredible. history books. 
So I'm, I'm sitting there studying my own dad's performances with my classmates, and it was awkward. But I quickly realized that, you know, when I win with my team a rugby game and I played well, and people are telling me, ah, oh, he's only good because he's Steven Roach's son. I'm like, it's nonsense. Mm. So I, I quickly realized that that was something that was always going to be around me, especially growing up in Ireland. So might as well embrace it and accept it. And it's like, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm Stephen Rochester, so what? Uh, he was a cyclist, I'm a rugby player. And when I was cycling, uh, my dad was very hard with me. Um, I never had the best equipment. I always had a very normal bike uh, because I had to work for it. Uh, my dad came up from a very hard working class in Ireland. Um, and for him, it was all about earning your steps. Hmm. So nothing came easy, although he was highly successful. I just had to work for everything. And, um, and people were like, oh, he's won because of the bike. Oh, he's won because of Stephen Rochester. It's like, no, he's got, probably got the worst bike in a bloody peloton. And what does it got to do if he's is his son or not? He won the bike race. Yeah. So I decided, like, you know, you, it's just going to be there. So I'm just not going to be bitter about it because I'll be bitter all my life because it's never going to change. <laughs> this is something that I will always be Stephen Rochester's son. Yeah. Uh, doesn't matter. And as you mentioned, there's only two riders in the world in cycling history that achieve what my dad did. Yeah. So I was unlikely going to be the third rider. Hmm. Uh, and my first years as a professional rider, a couple of years later, it was also difficult because I went to Cofidis and a lot of the staff had actually worked with my dad. Okay. And I had huge expectations. I, I turned pro back then. Uh, and I was just about 20. I was 20 in a month. And it was very young back then. Uh, for the first two years of my contract, I was, was always the youngest rider on the team. They yeah. were signing near pros that were older than, than me back then. And I remember, it's like the end of 2004, uh, 2005. And I realized that it was a little bit difficult because... I had high expectations because back in the 70s, my dad had turned pro in his 20s. And he went Paranese at 21, yeah. which, he was, which was even more rare than, than my generation. And everybody thought that I was going to be the next big thing. And the truth is, the first two years, I felt I was disappointing. I, I was a very good young near pro, but I wasn't winning the races I wasn't winning Paranese at 21 mm -hmm. and I never won Paranese and I'm almost 40 now. So, but, but people expected me to be as good as my dad. Yeah. And, and, and that's the first time more than when I was at school and people were like, Oh yeah, he's only good. Because, that was the first time where for me it was a bit hard because I realized that in people's mind, I was going to disappoint because I, I could never reach my dad's level of how good he was when he was young. Lucky enough, after a couple of years, I well, my second year pro I won, my third year pro I won, and then my fourth year pro I won, and I, and I, it was just my first year that was kind of difficult. But um, 
if I wasn't Stephen Roach's son, I would have been a just a very good level young rider. Yeah. But because I was Stephen Roach's son, I was a average talent. <laughs> Uh, and that was difficult. Lucky enough, after time, people, well, one time made that they kind of forget about me. And, and not every year they were, they were going to ask me the same questions. And they realized that I was also different than my dad. Yeah. I was a faster sprinter. I could do okay in the classics um, and add other qualities. And people realized that, okay, I was never going to be as good as my dad, but didn't mean I was a bad rider. Yeah. And then I had, then I had a lot of support, but the first two years of my career was, were quite difficult. And then mm. after that, third, fourth year, then, and I started doing results in the Volta and stuff like that. Then, then the media, but also the people started to realize that, well, who cares if he's not as, as good as his dad, he's still okay enough cyclist. I think, what you're speaking about to some extent speaks is that you are brave. You're brave to take that step, to follow your, your dad's steps into cycling. You knew that you were going to be pre uh, compared to him. It's really brave to, to do that. Uh, so, yeah, kudos to you, Nico, for doing that. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, you've had a long career. You, you faced those challenges yourself when you were a young rider. Now you're with young riders in Trinity, and Trinity obviously has... has um, uh, come up with some superstars the last couple of years, Tom Peacock, Ben Healy, etc. What What is there now that you talk to these guys about? How, what can you sort of teach them? How can you sort of help them? What, what, are you, what are the things that you help them with? So what I really like with Trinity is when I'm on the bike, like even, even, even now, so I was supposed to leave on Wednesday and uh, today I decided that I was going to stay another five days till the end of the camp with them. I, so one Trinity, I, I feel at home. So Andrew McQuaid, the, the owner of Trinity, uh, is the owner and the father of Trinity. And I'm like the uncle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, nice. when, 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 Andrew, when Andrew started um, Trinity Sport Management in 2009, I was his first client with uh, Philip Dagnum, the other Irish writer. And I grew up with Andrew since, since we're kids because of our dads were friends together and with, with Pat McQuaid, obviously, then being the UCI president. But back then, my dad and his dad were, were friends. Um, you know, when we were 11 and, or 12, when we started cycling together, uh, we'd go on these adventure cycles around the Wicklow Mountains in Dublin. So I know Andrew for a long time. And when Andrew told me, he was a very good lawyer, and he said, I'm going to study sports management, and I'll be a cycling manager. I said, well, count on me. Whenever that happens, I'll be your first client. And I hold my word. So 2009, uh, Andrew gets his management degree and he is a qualified lawyer. Um, I hook up with him. Philip Dagnan hook up with him. A couple of other guys come in through, through my introduction. And I've always pushed and promoted Trinity through all my career. Uh, because one, I think Andrew is a good manager because I like his way of seeing cycling and understanding cycling and the way he looks after the, the riders. Mm. He created a team uh, a couple of years ago. Well, first of all, when he worked with Wiggins and the Wiggins team. Uh, and again, I, I helped him with that and uh, to, you know, with, not help him, supported him with that. Mm. And then he created the trade team for Tom Peacock initially. Uh, and this is the whole story. When Tom 
wanted to do cyclocross and road and mountain bike and all together. Uh, Andrew was like, okay, well, we need to do something around you. And from a background, I've, I've always loved his project of Trinity. I thought, you know, it wasn't a Devo team, like being part of a worker team and whatever. I felt there was something, he also brought something cool about the team. Mm. Uh, you know, the amount of time I get DMs on my Instagram that people asking me where can they find the kit yeah. uh, or they, they like the team. And yes, it's not a Devo team of a worker team. But it's a pretty cool team to, to have for a young rider between the mountain bike or the road or cyclocross. Yeah. What I enjoy when I come here is I'm spending time with guys who have not made it and who want to make it. They will ask me questions. I will answer them in the best way I can. And maybe I will give them nine advice and seven of them are useless. But if two of them can help them make it to the next rank, my job is done. I'm, mm. I'm just happy. Uh, and, you know, I, I go training on the bike with them every day. I do the same exercise as they do. And, yes, they kick my backside when we do hill climbs and whatever <laughs> because I'm fit but not that fit. But, but it's great because they have the respect where they know what I'm doing. They're not like, oh, yeah, we beat Roadshop for climb today. They're like, we, we have a bit of a laugh about it because I give them a hard time. You know, I'll attack at the bottom or, or I'll, I'll, you know, I'll play around with them. Uh, or, I'll, you know, I'm on a kind of rolling stages where I can understand the road a bit more. I'll play with them and give them a hard time. But I, I love it because we have fun together. Yeah. I love being around the team. And... The staff is very good. You know, I'm, I'm, I know Pete, Pete Kennett for, for many years. We were teammates together at, at, um, at Team Sky and we went through a lot of things with Tour de France and training camps and all that. And what yeah. I'm at Trinity is that it's like my little home. And, um, and I'm also, like I said, Andrew's the owner and the founder and all that. And I'm kind of the, I just want to look after it. Yeah. No, I, I I never met Andrew, but I heard uh, interviews with him, and and he's he I can I can I can understand why you why you why you like him and why you sort of mm. are attracted to him, kind of in some some sorts. <laughs> yeah, I have to ask you one thing about. I mean, you you're doing so many things. We we laughed about it earlier, but also being a TV commentator on races, I was I was trying to imagine myself like sitting there in the booth, trying to be in my expert role but then on the other hand i maybe i know some of the guys that's actually riding in the peloton still and maybe i experienced some funny things with them how hard is it really to sort of to hold back on all those sort of maybe dirty or weird stories and, <laughs> or do you <laughs> open up <laughs> yeah so you you always have to keep a, a balance between telling a story and sharing intimate stories, which yeah. I think the general public also like. Mm. You know, if I'm out training with, I don't know, I train a lot with Jasper Stoven. Yeah. Uh, I'm out I'm training with Jasper Stoven and we talk about something. And I know I know it's not personal, but, you know, maybe one, one day we talk about his tactic of San Remo. And he's won San Remo, whatever. And I bring it up the year after in the Tour de France. Well, that's perfectly fine. 
um, there's stuff I don't talk about mm. uh, because also you know I'm I'm very intimate with my friends I'm very intimate with with my riders with, with the riders and I think you know there's things where I still ride I still enjoy that I have this really close connection with the riders in the peloton and they feel they can talk to me about stuff that I don't need to talk about on TV mm. you know if it's training techniques if it's diets whatever comes through family problems or family good stuff <laughs> not always problems it could be also good stuff yeah uh, and it's always finding a right balance between saying something and sharing something special because I, I still have access to all these top athletes in the peloton and also not giving away their pussy mm. uh, and it's a difficult one i have to say because i i know a lot of the riders and like i said but for me it's also my strength with the riders is the guys, and I don't want to lose my friendship with the guys because I'm now on, on TV. And when we're, when we're out training together, I want them to talk to me like I'm a mate. And, and that they know it's not going to be on TV, whatever yeah. it is. Because yeah. sometimes it's, it could be something very just, you know, not even something important. Uh, and I just say it because I thought it was funny. And I was like, oh, maybe they wanted me to say this story. Yeah. You know? So it, it's, it's very difficult. And it's a good question because, like I said, I... I I love that my friends trust me and I don't want to say anything that would put them in that that should not have been said on TV. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I mean... But but lucky enough, the guys, I, I, I know what to say and not to say because it's also my job to say something. I think it's also nice because even for them, I think that when the audience hears some some not personal story, but some more intimate story. Mm. They also relate to the rider in, in every way. It makes them maybe look like less like a machine, more like a human and, and relate to the rider and maybe like them more or dislike them more yeah. because not, we're not all friends. You know, sometimes social media uh, makes us look like we're all a bunch of buddies on the holidays or grow through globe, but no, there's good friends and not, not so good friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, we don't. You don't need to spill the beans here either. We can take that afterwards. No, I don't. Spill, <laughs> I, I don't spill the beans, but you know, sometimes I I, I follow most of the social media because yeah. it's also part of my work. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And I have to say, sometimes I see so much hypocrisy on social media, but not from the writers themselves, from internet sites who interpret stuff from yeah. writers. You know, you, you can give each other a hug because it's respect. Mm. The respect is also not friendship. You can respect your enemies. Yeah. So sometimes I think there's a bit of a mix there where, you know, respect is amazing and, and it's key in sport. Mm. But it doesn't mean you're best buddies. But you, you rarely should be, right? Whether you're main competitors, then, yeah. then you lose your edge most likely. Uh, but... Yeah. I, I, you know what? I, I, I live in Monaco and... A lot of the top riders live in Monaco, and a lot of the competitive riders actually even train together. Yeah. So, but but when it comes to racing, you also have to be professional. Mm. Uh, and yes, you know the odd time you might see Sam Bennett and um, Caleb Ewan train together, but believe me, when they need to go to the line, yeah, they will sprint each other like they don't know each other. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I saw on your Instagram that when you came to the hotel. You walked through the door, you came in, and on the table there, there was a picture of you crossing the line, winning a stage in the Vuelta. Like, one of the biggest moments of your career, I, I assume. 
Um, how did that make you feel? I was surprised. You know, normally you get a bottle of chocolate and maybe a bottle of champagne and some strawberries. But um, no, it, it was it was so unexpected that um, I was surprised. Also because I'm an Altea and just down the road, I actually took the red jersey in 2019. So it was like... Um, I would have thought that they might have put a photo. Like when I look at the photos, like you know, it's probably without doubt my greatest win. The photo that was there in in two thousand thirteen in yeah. in Galicia, yeah. Um, but I also wore the red jersey here in Calpe, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is literally five minutes away from Altea. Um, so it was also nice that I was like, oh, maybe they could have chosen something closer. But you know what? Um, that that photo of me winning in in the Volta is by far my, my favorite photo mm. um, and and to be honest I I only have one photo of me on a bicycle in my apartment and I have the same print oh wow so so it, it, it was symbolic because it, it was nice for me to, to see that they felt that that was probably the biggest one of my career mm. although I also wore the red jersey of the leader of the Volta in, in 2019 just a couple of years ago here in Calte. Uh, but that that first stage win in 2013 was was something special. But but from everything, from the way the stage happened, from how I won, I I had one from breakaways. I had one from a man stop finish, also from the bunch. But I hadn't done it on the Grand Tour. Mm. And to win the way I always dreamt of winning on the Grand Tour was something special. Such a beautiful picture. I got goosebumps when I saw it. It was it was <laughs> it was amazing. It was lovely. You mentioned as well earlier, or maybe I I mentioned it as well, like with the whole product development side of things. And and um how I think it was Ecoy that you also put on, on social media the other day or a week ago or so that you were doing some stuff with. But how 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 do you fit that into your schedule and what is it that you do like do you provide feedback do you help what what do you, where do you, where in yeah. the process uh, sort of do you um add your little stardust so um, for example with with eco that you mentioned that are trying to develop a high end shoe mm -hmm. so our project started a year and a half ago um and and i was writing uh, physique shoes uh, last year. But Ecoy came out with, with, with a new pedal as well, right? No? Yeah, Ecoy came out with a new pedal. Um, the one that was banned because they didn't... Fu fully, fully integrated yeah. pedal. Um, yeah, so it didn't get banned. They needed to the, get approval. The approval for the prototype. Uh, right? no. Yeah, so, so, so that's good now. Mm. So they, they launched a product before getting the stamp by the UCI because all products must be, must be UCI approved, basically. Mm -hmm. So you've been part of that process. So I've been part of the process, um, not really on developing the pedal because the pedal was developed before me. Mm -hmm. uh, my work was to develop the shoe for the pedal. Um, so the leather, the stiffness of the sole, give feedback on you know the boa strings and all that. And um, indeed, once. Like the pedal was developed for me again, it was to work on the shoe, but also give feedback on the combination. Oh, Do I like yeah. it? Do I feel that it makes sense? Because of course, uh, if you go on the internet sites, they claim it's a seven watt. 
personally, when I train, I do not understand seven watts. You know, you feel 20 watts, you feel 30 watts. Yeah. Seven watts, if I close my eyes, I don't know what seven watt is. Mm. It could be a pedal stroke. You know, my right leg is stronger than my left leg. It could be a seven or eight watt just on my on my leg power. Mm-hmm. So that I will leave to data analyst. My feeling is, my feedback, sorry, is on the feeling. How does a pedal stroke feel? Mm. Is it smoother? Do I feel that is it because of the bigger platform do I feel more pressure when I pedal? Do I feel efficiency? Um, is there a difference between other brands, the plus, the cons? Um, if I was non-contracted, what should I choose? Yeah. And so for me, it's very difficult to develop the pedal because I'm also contracted with time yeah. pedals. Mm-hmm. So this is why my job is really to work on the shoe gotcha. more than the pedal itself. Got you, got you. Uh, the uh, and the pedal was actually developed before I had uh, signed with Ekoi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but for me, it's important to develop the shoe that works with this special pedal. Very cool. Uh, because it, it, it's a weird feeling, you know. The first time when you put when you clip in, it, it, it's it's a weird feeling, and you have to get used to it. And obviously, being an integrated pedal, the sole needs a lot of work. So it's all giving this feedback about the sole. And how it fits, uh, which is very important. I mean, it makes sense for me. If you want sort of a very cohesive, very infused system, you, it should be more integrated, just like this system. But I mean, obviously, the problem is if you have multiple bikes and or you need to have same shoes for everything. Or yeah, that's I guess that's the mm. problem that some people face. I only have two, so I'm, I don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> But I need to, I need to ask you another thing. Uh, now I'm I'm switching gears here because you have so many things uh, as, as we spoke about. But when I when I interview people uh, for for work and um, when I want to hire someone to be my team, I sometimes ask them a question along the line, like imagine yourself that you had your own company, you founded it, and you're now sort of to you have you have enough money and you get going, you have a good business idea, whatever. And you're now sort of to define your culture, the core values for your company. Um, and then I asked them, so what what would those be, kind of? And then they answer okay. whatever they want to answer. And then then I get a feel of sort of, okay, you might be a good fit for, for us because you speak about these things and these things, right? So now you have been in, I don't know how many different pro teams. There's, I didn't count them, but it's quite a few different. So you have experienced yeah, many thanks. different cultures within teams. Mm-hmm. Um and now you founded your own team. So yeah. what are your core values now for your team? And what have you sort of brought with you from your old? I mean, those are bigger, pro, the pro cycling teams, right? Than, than, than your gravel team now with three members plus yourself, right? But but nonetheless, there is, is there a, such a feeling about yeah. sort of what culture do you want there? What what core values would you choose? <laughs> there's there's uh, a couple of things. So one thing that... Um, that for me was my strength was never giving up and you know I, I was brought up that way as a kid and I remember my dad when I did my first world championships he told me whatever happens finish I don't care if you're last if you're 50th it's the honor of the jersey you finish so never giving up is also very linked to respect um it's not about only about performance. I think for me, 
especially if you say the conditions is you're already a, a good company. It's about holding the line, not being obsessed with performance. I love performance, don't get me wrong. I love performance and I work so hard on performance and optimizing everything. But my core values is about not giving up and respect. Mm. I, in my team, to give you a bit of feedback around my team, um, I felt that when I stopped my career, I reached out to brands, some told me no, and some backed me straight away. And I felt that I've been lucky enough to be working with cool brands who wanted me as an ambassador, they wanted me to work with me. And I have a big, generous heart, and I think that was also one of my downfalls as a pro cyclist. I wasn't hungry enough. Maybe at some point I was, I became where I was too nice of a guy. I wouldn't go and give that last elbow for the corner, and I'd go in in second position, which meant that I couldn't win the sprint or whatever. Mm. But I felt that, you know what? Um, for example, my brother, he was the one that introduced me to gravel. So for me, when I gathered up a bunch of sponsors, when they told me they were going to support me, I was like, well, you know what, Alexi, sponsors are supporting me, but I'll support you. And then this year, um, well, already last year, I felt that it was great to give a chance to uh, a woman on the bike too. Mm -hmm. So I helped out this girl called Justine. Uh, unfortunately, she, she had to stop halfway through the season for, for personal reason. But the idea was to give her a chance to go and ride gravel. Um, she was the Assos ambassador. And I helped her out. And she only got two races in. And then she decided that, uh, unfortunately, like I said, she had personal reasons. But nevertheless, this year when my my, my brother's partner, she, she rates... She races in a Dutch continental team and they have the possibility to go and do some gravel racing. So uh, I thought it'd be great to have a, a girl on the team. I think it's really important today. I'm, I'm a big defender of, of women's cycling. Mm. And um, and then the son of a friend of mine, uh, Pascal Lino, who was a yellow jersey in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, his son lives in Nice, uh, worked for my sister a couple of months in, in, in Nice part-time. And he called me this winter saying he wanted to ride gravel. He's super motivated. He's going to retire from his trying to be a pro cyclist. He was pro cyclist for two years in a county level. And he realized, or three years, and he realized that he was never going to make it more than, than county and it wasn't good enough for him. So he wanted to give a chance to, to gravel. And we find an agreement. And for me, it's, it's great to be able to, to help out and support them in some way or another and to go back to what you were saying the condition why did i choose these people because i feel they relate to working hard not giving up and if you work hard and you don't give up soon later results happen mm. yeah just like dancing with the stars huh coming back to that yeah <laughs> no that's yeah. i and like i, I like that people yeah that's really I, cool i you know I, I was brought up and as a kid, I was a winner. Huh. I, I just wanted to win. And with age, I learned that not everything was about winning. And also I realized that when I was at the top level of 
world cycling that there were better riders and it was going to be difficult to win. Mm. And I wasn't as good as the top riders, but then it was about, then it wasn't all, then it wasn't about winning. It was about giving my best. Mm. And whatever the result was, if I gave my best, I was happy. For a long time, I was unsatisfied because I felt that I could always give more. You know, if I was third, it was like, yeah, but I was third. I, I, I could have won today if I did this, if I did that or whatever. But third was good enough. But it just, I was obsessed with trying to win. And then I realized that, well, you know, I, I'm with the best in the world here. And, and maybe maybe here it is also about, you know, more talent or whatever. So it's also about, I'll just be satisfied with giving 100% of what I have. And if that gets me to 8 to 10 or whatever, and... You know, during my career, this is also why I, I made the choice later on in my career to to try and be the best road captain in the peloton rather than be the best leader. Mm. Because I realized that I was a great leader, but I wasn't the best leader. There was better team leaders than I was. And I didn't want to fight all my life for 8th or 10th position because I was a top 10 specialist. I wasn't a winner. I felt that I could maybe help a bunch of guys win big races. Yeah. And this is where I changed my career plan as well. Hmm. Uh, it seems like you're a very thoughtful person, right? And you 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 have, you do a lot of introspect, you think a lot and you, mm -hmm. you it's really impressive. I was going to ask you what motivates you, but you kind of spoke to it already and how that actually has seems to have evolved over time which things have motivated you. Um but to speak about the present now, what what motivates you right now? What what keeps you going? Uh, is there anything special that you that sort of brings joy to your life, or is it this doing everything right now? Yeah, so that, that's that's also a very a very good question. It's a very difficult question because I, I have ups and downs like everybody. Yeah. And on social media, I try to, I try to smile. I try to motivate people because I think it's very important. I think um, people who follow me on my Instagram is not because I was a winner. It's because I tried, because I worked hard, mm. because I always give everything. I never give up. And I've been through some very difficult moments in my private life. Uh, you know, my brother survived two cancers. Um, I've been through a very, very rough divorce that almost ruined my life and my career. There's no easy divorce, but mine was especially difficult. Yeah. And I hear you. I've been there. I felt that it's, yeah, it's, it's life. And uh, many other men and women, my sister's divorcing yeah. at the moment, so I know what it is on both sides. And um, I, I felt that, again, it's, it's just easy to let go, but I, I what keeps me going is is just this hope of something better later on. And I understand that you always have to work hard to get where you want to go. Mm. And sometimes you, you achieve it and sometimes you get as close as possible. Like, you know, I in 2015 for the Olympics that were in 16, um, I was asked, can you give a quote? I says, you know what, I'll think about it. And I came back and I was like, Reach for the stars and try and make it to the moon. Mm. Because it was like, you know, aim high. Aim really high. 
And if you don't make it, it's fine. Just be satisfied. But you, you aim high and then it kind of pushes you up. And it doesn't mean you want to go as high as where you aim. Every, not every dream is possible. But you, you work towards that dream. Yeah. And you accomplish things. And you go as far as you go. And if it's just going one step up, well, at least you went one step up. Hmm. It doesn't mean you dream about 10. It's okay to not reach 10. But if you went one up, well, you're one up on zero. Exactly. So that's the, that's the way I saw it. It was all about small steps and progress. Yeah. And, you know, even people, when they, when they talk to me about, oh, I'm a new, new person in cycling, what should I do? It says, don't go crazy. Step by step. It's about progressing slowly. It's not about, it's, it's, you know, it, it takes time. Um, don't rush it. Uh, build things up. Uh, and that's the way I see things with, with life. What motivates me is hoping that sooner or later um, I haven't found my my spot yet. Mm -hmm. I'm still looking for that. And this is why, as you mentioned, I do everything because I, I, I haven't found really what I am or where I want to go. I just know two things. I love to be on my bicycle. Yeah. And I, and I, it's very difficult for me to leave this cycling world. Mm. And this is my happy space. I'm happy on a bicycle. I'm happy with being around cycling world. So as long as I can hang in there, I want to do that. Knowing that this also comes to an end. And at some point, I'm going to have to reinvent myself again. But, but for now, I'm happy being on the bike. I'm happy being able to go out training with my friends who are still professional because I still need to share those emotions. Uh, I'm happy here when I'm with Trinity and I got 18 and 19 year olds who, who give me a hard time on the bicycle. <laughs> but, 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 but then although they're, they're kicking my ass on the bike, they still look up to me for what I've done in my career. Oh. So you have this respect and things like that. And I just like this relationship. Um, so what motivates me is, is that I feel like I there's still much more to be done. There's there's no end, and I just want to keep on going. I love that. I love that. I mean, that kind of and, and you go, yes, you go a lot about that on your on your on your stories on your reel. It's all about you know finding your space yeah. and going for it. And and this is why I got a I got really into following you over your you know your 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 drone, which by the way, I still cannot get my drone to follow me. <laughs> but I used to love you. You just go down this, this lane with your drone up you, you got a cool text going up there. And I was like, this is cool because I relate to that. I'll come down to Nice and I'll tell you someday how to do it. <laughs> yeah. I'll show you. <laughs> Look, Nico, I'm not going to hold you um, from, from that beer in the bar. You, you are a true source of, of inspiration. Seriously, this talk, I'm, I'm completely blown away. I don't know how to end this really more than just to say thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a blessing. I really hope that you enjoy those last couple of days in Altea and that you will have a, a splendid 2024. I'll be constantly following you, see how you're doing in the racing. Even though that you might not be winning, I'll be rooting for you. And just thanks. yeah, wish you all the best for the, for, for the future. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. It's been amazing talking to you. Thank you. Again, Nicolas, thank you so much. That was such an amazing call. You said so many brilliant things. Um, trying to figure out which bits and pieces to make my little snippet of that I usually use in the beginning of this episode was really, really difficult. And um, you just gave me so many small, beautiful little gems to use. 
uh, and I really hope that we will be we will be seeing each other soon uh, at some point in time. Not that I'm going to be <laughs> as fast as you, but nonetheless, I think it's more about the community, about the within quote spirit of gravel, and I think we didn't speak about it, but you really embody that sort of inclusiveness, and your friendliness is is off the charts. Um, I'm super super impressed by you uh, for being such an open, transparent, honest and brave person. Thank you for sharing all that with, with us. Next week is, uh, is another episode coming, so be sure to watch out in all the channels, YouTube, podcast, and Spotify. That's where you can find it. And if not, you can also find me on Instagram. My name is Graveholic. My name is Marcus, and I wish you all a great day. Take care. Bye. <laughs>